The reason we need to examine the work of Jean-Francois Lyotard is because he is a key figure in the loose constellation of philosophers labelled as postmodernist or poststructuralist, who directly influence posthumanism. Thus, posthumanism emerges out of postmodernism. Lyotard offers us one of the first direct theoretical interventions to explain how technology transforms both our humanity and our inhumanity. We can begin, for example, to see in Lyotard the distinction between posthumanism and transhumanism. These movements, while they do overlap, are distinguishable. A useful shorthand to get to grips with this internal distinction is that transhumanism tends to retain elements of Enlightenment philosophy. Transhumanists are a species of posthumanists committed to using technology to enhance existing human competencies in biology. The element of Enlightenment thinking they retain is a belief in rationality and technological progress, as well as a retention of the mind-body duality. Raymond Kurzweil's work on technological singularity would be a good example of this. This is where Kurzweil argues that artificial intelligence reaches such a stage of advancement that it becomes indistinguishable or better than human cognition. Posthumanism, on the other hand, tends toward undermining the centrality uh, of the human subject, as well as remaining sceptical about the inherent goodness of uh, technological progress itself. Lyotard holds somewhat of a dual role in debates about posthumanism, therefore. This is largely because his philosophy is both an optimistic and pessimistic dimension. The Lyotard of the postmodern condition does see positive elements and opportunities because of the transformation of science and technology. However, the Lyotard of the inhuman is gravely concerned about the extent that technoscience undermines the meaning of uh, the human being. In this lecture, I will provide you with some background context to Lyotard's philosophy, as well as look at what is meant by postmodernism, and more specifically, I will explain Lyotard's the postmodern condition. The latter, much misunderstood text, is crucial for understanding the theoretical features of the posthuman condition. Lyotard, along with Michel Foucault and Jacques Derrida, is often considered as one of the high priests of postmodernism. Of course, these philosophers are not at all reducible to each other, and quite often disagreed. A lot. Of those three thinkers, as time has got on, it is possible Lyotard, who has received the least scholarly attention. This lecture aims to address this lack and show the centrality of the postmodern condition for understanding what it is to be humans in a post-human world. Lyotard himself was born in 1924. He studied philosophy at the Sorbonne and published his first essay in the post-war period in Les Temps Modernes. Uh, the journal founded by Jean-Paul Sartre. Like Derrida and Foucault, Lyotard is very much a post-war writer. He holds a deep scepticism of totalitarianism in all its forms, and by extension, any thought pattern which is devoted to systematic totality. Lyotard's earliest work also holds that human beings are in substance fundamentally forlorn. Fascism and communism are no longer tenable candidates for understanding the human experience. This begs the question whether post-war capitalist economies are a viable alternative to fascism and communism. On this, Lyotard is also sceptical, as the post-war settlement only ever offered a vision of humanity constituted true technocratic rule, bureaucratic management and colonial exploitation. What is interesting about Lyotard is that, as a thinker, he is always struggling. He is sceptical of any kind of totalitarian thought, 
but equally finds in his contemporary capitalism the seeds of a nihilistic and homogeneous society. He remains, therefore, a bit of a tortured Marxist. If we could try to sum up Lyotard in one pithy phrase, it might be Marx without dogma. Marxism does play an important part in his intellectual formation, although it would be fair to say that he was an unorthodox Marxist, even in his earlier work. In 1954, Lyotard joined a radical Marxist group called Socialism or Barbarism. The title alone should tell you something about Lyotard's intellectual formation. Socialism is an alternative to capitalism, but it must be a socialism that resists descending into any form of barbarism. Thus, for Lyotard, there was an injunction that Marxism should reject any existing forms of authoritarian socialism, whether Leninism, Stalinism or Trotskyism. I am less interested in the internecine politics of left-wing corpuscular groupings. It is more important here to get a basic understanding of Lyotard's early Marxism if we want to gain an understanding of how his mature uh, philosophical work up to the postmodern condition emerges. The kind of socialism Lyotard advocates affords some insights into how his philosophy works. There are three elements which highlight how Lyotard emerged and deviated from Marxism. Firstly, the barbarism of socialism and barbarism also indicates technological collapse. Global nuclear catastrophe was a palpable issue to the world in the 1950s and 60s and beyond. Many members of socialism and barbarism thought that another world war was imminent. And given that nuclear catastrophes did and still happen, either by neglect, design or accident, the technological horizon of humanity was one where the possibility of human extinction was a real possibility. Thus, Lyotard's early Marxism is overshadowed by a sense of impending technological apocalypse. Secondly, socialism and barbarism had a distinct libertarian streak. They thought one of the most destructive features of modern capitalist societies was state bureaucracies. Instead, favouring a socialist society set up with workers' councils and anarchistic communes as an, as an alternative form of social relations. Lyotard thought that political organisation needed to remain undefined in order to promote forms of life resistant to state bureaucratization. Hence, Lyotard's libertarian streak. If our political relations are organised to incorporate a degree of contingency, this implies freedom. Because if freedom is determined by a pre-established political theory or system, it is no longer free. These developing views ultimately led Lyotard to split from socialism or barbarism in 1963, and splitting from the subsequent faction he joined, uh, Pouvoir Ouvrier, or Workers' Power. This brings us to the third element of Lyotard's tortured relation to Marxism, and that is he began to question the overarching explanatory power of Marxism. That Lyotard placed such an emphasis on freedom, contingency and difference meant that he could not be sincerely aligned to revolutionary politics, since if our liberation was free or undetermined, then Lyotard's thought could not be reduced to a particular political programme, thus would be viewed as reactionary. This is an important moment in the formation of Lyotard's thought. While Lyotard always retained a certain fidelity to Marx, he later participated enthusiastically in the student and worker uprisings of May 68, there is also the sense that he lost faith in the total vision of Marx's politics. 
specifically as it was defined by the French Communist Party. The loss of faith in Marxism as the ultimate grounding of all other thought meant that Lyotard was suspicious of Marxism as a meta-narrative, a grand story which offers an ultimate explanation to which all explanations can be reduced. One could say that Lyotard's later work, and the postmodern condition specifically, expands this idea to all aspects of modernity, whether we are encountering science, technology, art and religion. There are two other philosophical movements other than Marxism which contributes to Lyotard's philosophical development, phenomenology and psychoanalysis. Lyotard was quite taken by elements of the work of Edmund Husserl, Martin Heidegger and Maurice Merleau-Ponty. Much of his work on the inhuman, which we will examine later, is drawn from Heidegger's essays on technology. More generally, Lyotard, whose first book was on phenomenology, appreciated the anti-mechanistic and anti-reductive elements of phenomenology. He also appreciated that phenomenology as a philosophical method devoted to understanding the life word, Lebenswelt, or the concrete world of human action. The other influence on Lyotard was Freud and psychoanalysis. Although Lyotard attended Jacques Lacan's famous seminars on psychoanalysis, he was not particularly taken with Lacan or his way of doing psychoanalysis. He did, however, think Freud was valuable to help us think about modern life. This was because Freud is one of the few thinkers who took desire seriously. In two works, Discourse, Figure and Libidinal Economy, Lyotard builds on Freud's dream pathologies to argue desire is an activity of disfiguration. Note the parentheses around the dis of disfiguration. Lyotard sees in desire something unclassifiable. Typically in the history of philosophy, desire is considered secondary or derivative of reason. Lyotard, however, thinks that desire tells us something fundamental about what it is like to be alive. Desire is a very active and constitutive part of what we are. Desire itself is restless and always seeking out satisfaction. But of course, once it is satisfied, desire is satiated and immediately changes attention to something else. Thus humans, and this is perhaps Lyotard's first post-human thought, desire actively disfigures us. Disfigurement implies, at least in romantic literature, a type of monstrosity. We could think here of Mary Shelley's Frankenstein as a key precursor to Lyotard's post-humanism. As with Shelley, Lyotard is trying to demonstrate how the monster is the norm. In the end of Shelley's work, we are left unsure whether we should have sympathy for Dr. Frankenstein or the monster child he has birthed. Similarly, Lyotard sees desire as the inevitable work of disfiguration in the human. This is not something to be mourned. That we are desiring beings illuminates the recalcitrance of human thought to rational control or cognitive appropriation. There remains something unsayable or unpresentable about the human being, some uncountable difference, or something actively unclassifiable. In other words, there remains something inhuman about humans. And this is a central insight of post-humanist thought. The historical classification of the human or the self needs to be displaced. The idea that the human subject is in some way decentered binds Lyotard to other post-structuralist thinkers such as Foucault and Butler. The idea that the self is in some way protein or redefinable bounds Lyotard to post-humanism. If the self is not reducible to ahistorical transcendental categories, as Kant argued, then that self is inherently contested and destabilised, open to redefinition, premised on the contingency of futural events, and able to think beyond itself. 
Lyotard's posthumanism is dependent on the fact our identities are in fact incomplete and open. Because Lyotard appreciates difference, contingency and freedom, he directly opposes them to both totalitarianism and totalizing discourses. Freedom is a prerequisite for philosophical thinking. If we do not have freedom, we do not have thought, discernment, judgment, nuance or sophistication. Systematic thinking is a form of mechanical thinking. If you need a system or a correct theory to do the thinking for you, then you're not really engaged in thought. We see this theme particularly developed in the postmodern condition. Lyotard is concerned with the homogenizing effects of scientific and technological trends, trends which indicated to him those future iterations of human subjects which would be bereft of the conceptual tools to articulate technological development. Hence, the postmodern condition attempts to provide an overview of what constitutes contemporary scientific and technological humans, as well as offering alternatives to some of the more insidious trends emerging from the far-reaching consequences of capital development. The book itself uh, originated as a research report for the Conseil des Universités du Québec, who commissioned Lyotard to research and report on the contemporary state of knowledge and information. The report was later published as a book in 1979. The report, as its subtitle suggests, was a report on knowledge. In Lyotard's own words, and I quote, our working hypothesis is that the status of knowledge is altered as societies enter what is known as the post-industrial age and cultures enter what is known as the postmodern age. But what is the postmodern age? On Lyotard's term, and he admits this is a gross simplification, the postmodern condition is defined by an incredulity towards metanarratives. Merit metanarratives are as we've seen with Marxism, explain all stories which determine all aspects of history and progress. There are two points that we can note here. Firstly, the incredulity part indicates individuals, especially those of advanced liberal democracies, just no longer believe in total explanations. This is a direct consequence of political totalitarianism, but also due to the expansion of industry, technology and education. The second part is also important to note, and that is the narrative part of the equation. Lyotard takes very seriously the importance of stories. The stories we tell ourselves inaugurate how our societies work. Without narratives, we're not really anything for Lyotard. Indeed, narrative as language is a necessary condition of the formation of political communities. Even before we are born, any member of a community is positioned as a referent, which is continually recounted to and recounts, thereby setting the parameters of their self-understanding and place in society. By 1979, the year the postmodern condition was published, we were starting to tell ourselves new stories about who we are. These stories automatically reject the grand stories of the past. As we saw, one meta-narrative was Marxism, another was fascism. Other meta-narratives include Christian messianism. But, in the postmodern condition, there was one meta-narrative that defined our age most of all, and that was a story of the extent of our belief in the progress of science and technology. At the core of the postmodern condition, there is really two things going on. There is a critique of the more pernicious effects of contemporary techno-sciences and a reframing of alternative forms of life. Lyotard's books seek to articulate alternatives to desire to reduce all narratives to one theory system or standard of evaluation. 
one of the meta-narratives of rhetoric standards of aviation is that of scientific progress and technology. Leotard is less interested in attacking the activities of scientists, nor is he making the banal point that all knowledge is relative. Rather, he is talking about changes in the way scientific knowledge and its offshoots in technology and engineering are comprehended. More specifically, he is explaining how contemporary science transforms the way knowledge works and the way it transforms how we think. The point is that we no longer can think of science as a binding form of our reality. There is no longer any form of encyclopedic knowledge. Rather than science having a distinct telos, i.e. advancing towards a unified and single goal, contemporary science must, in the latter parts of the 20th century, be conceived of as constituted at multiple loci. In other words, science is becoming fragmented, and consequently, this means that the way we know things are also becoming fragmented. We only need to think of the variety of scientific disciplines and their subdivisions here. This situation, however, is not necessarily a bad thing for Lyotard. Lyotard thinks that it is a good thing that we can no longer think of science as a unified whole, since that means contemporary science infuses a degree of contingency into our thinking. Science progresses by the census contestation, dissent, revision and experimentation, serving to mitigate against the emergence of any totalizing discourse. Lyotard, in one sense, follows Nietzsche's prophecy of the death of God. Postmodernity entails a collapse of meta-narratives into a proliferation of micro-narratives, of which scientific discourse is but one. There are, however, some negative consequences also to postmodernity. If knowledge is fragmented, this entails that there is a variety of different competing candidates for truth, which begs the question of legitimation, i.e. which competing truth candidate is the most valid and for what reasons. I think Lyotard was remarkably prescient here. If we think of the recent COVID-19 pandemic, public exhortations to follow the science, vaccination trials, vaccination rollout, we could quite clearly see that sites, depending on jurisdiction, had typically the most authority and was therefore the dominant narrative to respond to the pandemic. However, this situation did not preclude alternative competing narratives. In this instance, a range of alternative narratives emerged, encompassing New Age spiritualists, political libertarians, conspiracy theorists, anti-vaxxers and political fascists. And here we can discern the negative consequence of Lyotard's point. A multiplicity of competing narratives implies a levelling and homogenization of discourse. If there was no one narrative, then every narrative appeal for legitimation is as good as any other. Thus, the question of legitimation is the defining characteristic of the age. Leotard's hints talking more about the state of what and how we are. Even if some candidates emerge as more convincing true candidates, like scientific discourse did during COVID-19, there remains a sense of dissatisfaction that such knowledge is open to future revision and of a certain futility when trying to think of grand narratives which can explain all dimensions of human experience. When knowledge becomes as fragmented as Lyotard thinks it does, that remains a continual. There remains a continual, continual struggle for legitimation. Think of an average day on political Twitter. I don't think anything gives a better example of Lyotard's point better than political Twitter, with its never-ending demands for legitimation, assertions, sloganeering, insulting, and so forth. Inherent to the pursuit of knowledge is legitimation. However. The pursuit of legitimation inevitably ends up at a point of delegitimization. 
knowledge will assert questionable hypotheses, unverifiable hypotheses, it will make mistakes and often slip into unprovable discourse. I think a scientist would fairly say these activities would not count as scientific knowledge. However, science itself, due to its own revisability, commitment to trial and error and experimental nature, implies that our view of factual knowledge is necessarily in some sense also contingent. For Lyotard, this is effectively where we are. And for Lyotard, that is the nature of science itself. But then what then are we to do with legitimation? Lyotard observes that postmodern scientific discourse on the one hand can resist totalizing and homogenizing discourses. Science as a discourse demonstrates the ever-present possibility of contingency and difference by way of dissent, critique and judgment. On the other hand, because contemporary science is just one more candidate for legitimation, the technosciences seek out legitimacy by coupling with commodification. The danger for Lyotard was that because science inherently implies a form of delegitimization as well as legitimization, it seeks out legitimacy in the market sphere. Knowledge in advanced capitalist societies finds its authority not as an end in itself, but as a means to an end. If we take the example of the COVID-19 pandemic again, the development of the Oxford-AstraZeneca vaccine was done in conjunction with a pharmaceutical company. Now, I'm not saying this proposition is moral or immoral, rather my point is that the success of the scientists who developed the Oxford vaccine was dependent on corporate power, governmental funding, marketing and the profit motive. The point is though for Lyotard that the legitimacy of science can be directly indexed to economic performance. In fact, in many senses, that becomes the only legitimation of scientific knowledge, the extent to which knowledge is or is not a good commodity. If the only good knowledge is knowledge which engenders profits, then we are in a situation where our technological development is inextricably tied to efficiency and performance. Basically, something is legitimated as true and good only to the extent that it can maximise profits. Lyotard here sees that scientific discourse and technological innovation is not as neutral and disinterested as it might propose. This is an easy enough thought to grasp. Science is, for Lyotard, a diverse phenomenon and is just as susceptible to infighting, competition, vanity and status-seeking as any other human activity. While it would be glib to suggest scientists are in it for themselves or that science does not have mechanisms, things like trial and error, peer review, replicability of results, predictive capacity, to enhance their disinterestedness. Still, there is another sense that the success of scientific exploration is fundamentally dependent on its ability to attract funding, whether through government, medical institutions or corporations. As Eotar sees it, this leads to a situation where only profitable knowledge is legitimate, which leads to a more perverse possibility. And that is something is only the truth where it is profitable. If only knowledge which contributes to the growth of the economy or is dependent for its status on economic efficiency, then this leads to a homogenizing effect. All other forms of knowledge are deemed illegitimate. For example, art, philosophy, religion, sociology and so on. Now, knowledge can only be thought of in, well, in an instrumental sense, rather than as an end in itself. This situation, more than anything, reveals the duality of knowledge in postmodernity. In one sense, contemporary science and technology does not develop in a linear and progressive way. But in another sense, contemporary science conforms to an overarching developmental framework which uses scientific outputs to enhance efficiency and maximize profits as derived from its predictive capacity. The important term here is development. 
Lyotard sees science, technology and capital fusing in a new metaphysics of development. Metaphysical, in the sense that human existence is being radically transformed into something other than we are accustomed to. The metaphysics of development views humans as essentially competitive beings. More, the human being can only understand themselves as forms of capital. Later, we will see this thought develop more fully by Michel Foucault in what he calls biopower. Here, the human is considered only as an entrepreneurial subject. Now, this is not to criticise entrepreneurs, but to criticise the view that we can only understand humans within a narrative of competitiveness and entrepreneurialism. Again, we should note Lyotard's prescience on this when writing in the 1970s. The political transition he is noting is one from a a Keynesian economics of state regulation to the laissez-faire model of economics that becomes normalised under President Ronald Reagan in the United States and Prime Minister Margaret Thatcher in the United Kingdom. In other words, what Lyotard is announcing is the birth of the information or knowledge economy, or latterly, with the advent of social media, what we now know as the attention economy. The term attention economy is interesting here. The attention economy denotes an economy based on a peculiar form of scarcity. That is human attention. Human attention is a resource, one which can be commodified. There is a reason social media companies are keen for the default setting of your smartphone apps to have push notifications. Human attention is a finite resource. Competition for human attention requires ever more ingenious and efficient ways of focusing humans as information users. While Lyotard did not predict smartphone apps, however, he does frame technological development in terms of informational exchange and manipulation and was acutely aware of the potential acceleration of knowledge as computerized. Science, technology and engineering here becomes the ultimate service industry. But who are they servicing the needs of? They're servicing the needs of corporate capitalism by supplying surveillance techniques, algorithms, generating patents, techniques and expertise for corporations. Thus, knowledge is only knowledge when it is equivalent to information. Within the developmental metaphysics, efficiency, performance and market economics takes precedence over all else. Within such a metaphysics, the human being becomes irrelevant, considered as secondary to the perpetuation of the developmental process itself. This is where we can see Lyotard gain sight of the post-human. The technological prosthesis of technoscience imply that the human is something perfectible, albeit perfectible in a technological and mechanistic way. Those things which humanism considers as essential to humanity, human finitude, messiness, contingency, tragedy, are forsaken. Technological devices, advanced or otherwise, from basic spectacles to the internet to military drones, in some way are premised on a logic of improvement. For example, and one can say this about all technology, we live in concrete houses because they are an improvement over mud shacks and therefore afford us enhanced forms of shelter. Other technological devices such as computers, cars and 3D printers aid us directly by augmenting our sensorium or physiological apparatuses, in other words our organs, or indirectly by enhancing available utility. Contemporary technology, as Lyotard sees it, pursues this continual logic of optimization and improvement. The far-reaching consequence of this logic of development is that humans are prefigured as purely informational circuits. Here, the only good humans are the humans who take in the least amount of information and output the maximum amount of information. Furthermore, our machines can train us to do this in an optimum way. This is what is called digital nudging, where our devices have tools incorporated to change behaviour and generate new habits. 
there is a reason for doom scrolling. Overall, though, in the metaphysics of development, the only good human being is an efficient one. The only imperative is performance. This cannot be called genuine knowledge, and as Leotard discerns, is really another name for wealth accumulation and capital expansion. Capitalism, as a form of economic arrangement, has a very distinct telos. All things are subordinate to its growth. The trouble is, for Leotard, untrammeled growth pulls humans along with it, which is an interesting thought because in some sense without humans you do not have capital. The point being, we find ourselves in a position where we are determined by the logic of development, but are not at all in a position of mastering it. The exponential growth generated demanded by the techno-sciences expands humans beyond their human capacities through a global electronic and information network for Lyotard. And remember, Lyotard was writing pre-internet. The effect is a dehumanizing one. By reducing humans to modes of efficiency entails we are destined to become more machining at best and replaceable at worst. While this may sound like a shoddy dystopian sci-fi, one must remind oneself what the automation of industry will do to our economies. Lyotard does offer an alternative to techno-scientific thinking. He deems that we must philosophically and politically resist the logic of development, and we can do this by embracing the unpresentable, the unrepresentable, contingency, difference, language games. Borrowing from Wittgenstein's language games, that is, languages operate through overlapping sets of contextual usages, Lyotard sees that we need to inject plurality into our existences. Plurality and diversity resist homogeneity or the flattened levelling ontology of technoscientific capitalism. If there is a moral injunction in Leotard's work, it is the injunction to undermine totalising worldviews, especially those that pursue a view of life as inseparable from commodification. The worst of all possible worlds is the world where we are subordinated to types of thinking or stories which grasp all of reality in one. That threat no longer resides in totalitarianism but instead can be found in the logic of development's attempt to reduce all language games and narratives to itself. The ultimate nightmare for Lyotard is a world without plurality, in his own words. Under the general demand for slackening and for appeasement, we can hear the mutterings of the desire for a turn of terror, for the realisation of the fantasy to seize reality. The answer is, let us wage a war on totality. Let us be witnesses to the unpresentable. Let us activate the differences and save the honour of the name. In conclusion, with Lyotard, we begin to see one of the first significant accounts of the post-human. The postmodern condition is a crucial work in any genealogy of post-humanism, since it attempts to understand how science and technology have come to shape what human beings are in ways imperceptible to their immediate consciousness or self-presentation of ourselves as humans. From Lyotard's early forays into Marx, Onto his later articulation of postmodernity, he is alive to the disastrous breakdowns of emancipatory political projects. The future iteration of this catastrophe could well be the techno-scientific worldviews privileging of efficiency and performance as the only forms of beauty, goodness and justice. In fact, it would even be a bit of a stretch to suggest it could, could be beauty, beautiful, good, true and just. Lyotard is an important thinker for post-humanism precisely because he is frank about the historical destiny of our technological, informational and scientific development. Like the ancient myth of Pandora's box, there is no turning back on the technical innovations which are now changing humanity at a rapid pace. Although we should perhaps think a little more deeply about that myth itself. The story of Pandora is not so much about an inquisitive girl who bit off more than she could chew. It is a myth about the question of the future and the past. 
the myth itself asks us to follow the Prometheans, who ask us to be mindful and concerned about our long future development, as opposed to the Epimetheans, who are easily seduced by shiny new objects and short-term gains. Similarly, Leotar, like the Prometheans, sees vulnerability as essentially constitutive of human life. Now that technological development has rapidly proliferated since Leotar's death in 1998, perhaps we should heed his warnings and try to see that any technological developments also needs to account for human contingency, difference, plurality for Leotar. Anything else would be barbarism.